Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, a digital resource for the multidisciplinary cancer team. This audio includes both the additional updates interview and podcasts from i3Health's CME slash NCPD activity, New Insights into Preventing and Managing Chemotherapy-Induced Neutropenia. First, listen along as Maura Abbott updates us on recent advancements in treatment, then stay tuned after the interview to listen along to the full activity. Today, I am joined by Dr. Maura Abbott, Assistant Dean of Clinical Affairs at the Columbia University School of Nursing. She recently co-led a continuing medical education, CME, and nursing continuing professional development, NCPT, activity called New Insights into Preventing and Managing Chemotherapy-Induced Neutropenia. This activity will be available on our medical education website, i3health.com, for free CME and CPD credit and will be linked in the text box below. Dr. Abbott, would you like to first start out with a bit of an introduction about yourself and okay. your interests? Sure. I am uh, Maura Abbott. I am an assistant dean for clinical affairs and associate professor of nursing in the oncology subspecialty program director at the Columbia University School of Nursing. I am also a practicing oncology nurse practitioner, um, and I run the oncology urgent care at uh, Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Um, and my, my interests are really just making sure, you know, patients are able to get their treatments and, you know, have the best prognosis and the best outcomes and side effects are managed along the way of their, their treatment and their diseases. Right, and thank you so much for your time again today. Sure, glad to be here. First question I have for you is, why do you feel it's important that the healthcare professionals participate in this activity and address their knowledge gaps about chemotherapy-induced neutropenia? So chemotherapy-induced neutropenia and or, you know, and when then you couple it along with febrile neutropenia are, you know, one of the biggest reasons that patients have to undergo dose reductions or treatment delays. And we know that after a certain amount of times of treatment delays and or dose reductions, the, you know, the, the prognosis changes for the patients. And so I think it's really important that providers understand, you know, what the current landscape of, of uh, you know, chemotherapy-induced uh, neutropenia is and, you know, what is, what is out there for treatment, what the guidelines are for, for prevention when we can do so, because it is a preventable mortality cause of mortality. Um, and I, I think that's really important part. And there are also things that are coming down the pike. Um, and, um, you know, and there are new things all the time. And I think we, we assume that we, we know what we're doing all the time, but, you know, there's new things and, you know, to keep on top of what's new, I think it's important to, you know, to take, to take part in this activity so we can prevent, um, you know, any sort of negative outcomes for our patients and improve the positive outcomes for our patients who are undergoing treatment and may be at risk for, you know, chemotherapy-induced neutropenia. And why is it necessary that healthcare professionals educate their patients about um, CIN and febrile neutropenia risk factors and prevention? Yeah, and I, th I think that's similar to kind of the first answer, right? So we as healthcare providers need to know who's at risk so we can effectively, you know, prevent that risk and or, you know, be as quick as reactively as we can, because unfortunately treatment for febrile neutropenia and chemotherapy-induced neutropenia are at this point are mostly reactive. And so I think it's really important that our patients also know what to look for in terms of um, signs and symptoms of, of both of these phenomenons so that they can understand the seriousness potentially of these conditions 
um, that they know what to do if they experience a fever and they're potentially neutropenic and how important it is to get help, um, you know, medical help in an, in an emergent and urgent fashion. Um, that, you know, it could be life-threatening is really, really important and that we want to go ahead and try to prevent it from happening or treat it as quickly as possible. Again, so that patients have the best outcomes, we can potentially reduce hospitalizations or length of hospitalizations for patients who need it the earlier we're able to, to go ahead and treat it. And I think it's really important for patients to understand that they're never, you know, they're never bothering us or anything like that because patients are always worried that they're, you know, calling it midnight on Christmas. It doesn't matter we want patients to understand that we're there for them and this is really important and to call any time of the day or night, they're not feeling well and they're at risk for, for neutropenia and that they may or may not have a fever. People also, you know, people think, oh, I must have a fever to be sick and they may not be neutropenic and have chills. So I think it's really important that patients are educated so that they know what to look for and feel really comfortable reaching out to us anytime, day or night with any questions to have their best, you know, best chance and best outcomes again, which is again, what we're, we're looking for, right? We're looking for patients to survive as long as possible and or be cured when possible and, and, and do well. Yeah, I totally, I really enjoyed the um, patient perspective of your guys's activity. I thought it's so important to include that. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course. And what would you like to see done in the next few years regarding the advancement of alternative strategies for preventing and managing CIN? Yeah, so as I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, right now our focus is on being reactive when it happens. Um, in, you know, it's only in a small amount of cases where we're prophylactically giving, you know, some sort of gram-stimulating colony factor to hopefully prevent it in patients, you know, like we think of patients who have liquid tumors, like leukemia patients or MBS patients or lymphoma patients, but we don't necessarily do that um, in patients who have solid tumors who are getting, you know, highly myelosuppressive chemotherapeutic agents for treatment. And so we end up being reactive after cycle one, which is where we see this happen most frequently. So what I would love to see is a move away from reactive and figure out a way for us to become proactive and unfortunately, one of the biggest hindrances to that is the, the cost of these medications and insurance um, you know, coverage for patients. I mean, these can be thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars per injection. And you know, unless you're really independently wealthy, you know, this is not something that most patients can afford. Um, and so it would be nice if we could figure out a way to make these medications you know, more accessible in terms of affordability and figure out some evidence to show that, you know, perhaps a larger group of people should be getting them prophylactically. I mean, I think there's also coming down the pike, we're also looking at different ways of different medications, different, you know, classes of drugs. Um, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, the, um, the CDK4 and 6 inhibitors. It's uh, trilocyclib is the, the medication. And, you know, and, and that's one of the ones we can think about giving that can prevent uh, chemotherapy-induced neutropenia. And, um, the planabulin is another drug, um, you know, that, that's, that's being studied and hopefully can and prevent it. And so perhaps we can focus on that as well. Again, you know, hopefully, and when those things, you know, those drugs are available, hopefully they can be truly accessible, not just available. Um, and so potentially we could prevent this from happening and maybe even prevent delays or reduct dose reductions or any of those kind of things. And that would be amazing for patients. Maybe we could prevent people from having to go in the hospital for febrile neutropenia. The other thing I think we really would be great is to get more evidence on who, who really needs to be in the hospital and who doesn't. I think we're still moving towards being comfortable with managing some people with febrile neutropenia in the outpatient world. 
Um, it's uncomfortable for us as providers because we're used to just admitting everybody who has febrile neutropenia um, where that may not be necessary as we now know. And so, you know, patients remain stable at home on oral antibiotic therapy, er, therapy after they've gotten, you know, some IV therapy, um, you know, they could be okay. It would be nice if we could figure out a little bit more about who potentially could fit into that category instead of needing a hospital admission. So those are kind of the things that I think would be great to get to. Yeah, definitely. And I know you were mentioning some of the possible medications. I was wondering if there's any specific clinical trials you're keeping an eye on currently that could make big changes in prevention. Right. And so those two medications that I actually mentioned, they're, they're still ongoing clinical trials related to both of those. And I think those are ones that we're really looking at and um, as the ones that are producing evidence that are, that are going to impact us in the, in the near future, as opposed to the long-term future. And I think, I, th I think those, those, those classes of drugs are, are the ones that we really need to focus on, you know, coming, coming up in the near future. Yeah. So last question I have for you is since recording, um, is there anything that you've learned or experienced that you'd like to add on to the information about CIN that you would like healthcare professionals to know? I think, I mean, it's interesting that you asked that because I think that, you know, when I was recording it, I, I was, you know, pretty sure I knew everything about it, right? I do it every single day in practice. And so, but I think Dr. Lyman and I each learned from each other when we were recording the initial, the initial um, presentation on this, because, you know, we, we each focus on different parts, the patient perspective, the, the scientific perspective, um, the clinical perspective, there's all these pieces. And I think I think what I have learned, and I think what's really important is even if we think we know what we're up to date on, it's really important to participate um, in these type of activities because I think they, um, you know, they bring forward some of the stuff that we may not have actually, you know, it may be very nuanced, but it may be something that we haven't yet put into our routine, even if we are aware of it. And I think that's really, really important. And again, I think I've become more comfortable about who I can manage at home versus who I need to admit to the hospital. And I think that's a really big thing for our patients. They really don't want to be admitted to the hospital. And I think that's something that um, we could really learn from this activity as well. Well, thank you so much for your time today again. And this has been wonderful. I've enjoyed talking to you about this. And thank you again for the activity and all the information. Thanks and for I hope, Yeah. And I hope to um, hear more about your research in the future. Great. Thank you so much for everything. Next up, listen along to Dr. Abbott's CME and CPD activity on chemotherapy-induced neutropenia, and remember to visit i3health.com oda-cin to claim your free credit. Chemotherapy-induced neutropenia is a severe toxicity that places patients with cancer at an increased risk of infection, dose reduction, hospitalization, and mortality. Therefore, timely management is critical to patient outcomes. This episode of Oncology Data Advisor will focus on new insights into preventing and managing chemotherapy-induced neutropenia. It features perspectives from two noted experts in the field, Dr. Gary Lyman, professor at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and the University of Washington, and Dr. Maura Abbott, associate professor at the Columbia University School of Nursing. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from G1 Therapeutics. Free CME and NCPD credit are available for this podcast. To claim credit and obtain further information, including faculty disclosures, visit i3health.com slash ODA hyphen CIN. 
Welcome to this program on new insights into preventing and managing chemotherapy-induced neutropenia. I'm Dr. Gary Lyman. I'm a professor in the public health sciences and clinical research divisions at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center and professor of medicine, public health and pharmacy at the University of Washington. And I'm pleased to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Maura Abbott, who's associate professor of nursing and assistant dean of clinical affairs at the Columbia University School of Nursing. These are our disclosures. So first of all, the learning objectives for this program. One is to identify patient tumor and cancer therapy risk factors for chemotherapy-induced neutropenia. Number two, to evaluate clinical practice guidelines in the management of febrile neutropenia. Thirdly, to assess recent clinical trial findings particularly on novel and emerging agents for chemotherapy-induced neutropenia treatment and prevention. And then finally, to apply strategies to prevent and manage infectious complications in patients with chemotherapy-induced neutropenia. So we'll start off with a set of definitions and, and risk factors, and I'll uh, turn this over to Dr. Abbott. So just starting with the definition of what is neutropenia, it is a low neutrophil count overall. And chemotherapy-induced neutropenia, which we'll refer to as CIN throughout this presentation, is caused generally by myelosuppressive chemotherapy in patients with cancer. We grade severity of neutropenia based on the actual neutrophil count, with the higher grade equaling a greater severity, matching the NCI CTCAE criteria. We also want to define what febrile neutropenia is because that's an oncologic emergency. And so the definition of febrile neutropenia is a disorder that's characterized by an ANC of less than 1,000 and a single temperature of 38.3 degrees Celsius, which is 101 degrees Fahrenheit, or a sustained temperature of greater than 38 degrees or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit for greater than an hour. So when do we really worry about chemotherapy-induced neutropenia, and when does it become really clinically significant? And we generally think of it when the ANC is less than 1,000 or a grade three. It's really even more clinically significant and more of an issue for patients when their ANC is less than 500, which is a grade four. Febrile neutropenia occurring when the ANC is less than 500 um, or is anticipated to become under 500 within 48 hours, accompanied by a fever of greater than 38.3, is clinically significant. There are risk factors for this, treatment-specific, patient-specific, and disease-specific. Unfortunately, chemotherapy-induced neutropenia can lead to dose reductions, delays in treatment, can cause compromising clinical outcomes, and overall survival for our patients. We do know that certain therapies, such as those listed on the slide, are more associated with chemotherapy-induced neutropenia. So just looking at the overall landscape of chemotherapy associated with neutropenia, we give myelosuppressive therapy, we end up with neutropenia. On one side, we can end up with febrile neutropenia, which can lead to life-threatening infection, prolonged hospitalization, and reduce overall survival for our patients. On the other side, it can also lead to dose reductions, dose delays, and again, overall reduction in survival. So some risk factors just for developing febrile neutropenia, we want to look at patient's age. The older a patient gets, the higher their risk. Their underlying um, comorbidities, if they have other diseases, their overall cancer diagnosis stage, how advanced the disease is, whether they've received pre other treatments before the current treatment that they're receiving, 
and other comorbid conditions. For patients who go on to develop febrile neutropenia, there are risk factors there as well for poor clinical outcomes, especially for, again, for patients who are older, who have severe neutropenia or prolonged neutropenia greater than 10 days, end up becoming septic, have invasive fungal infections, pneumonias, or require hospitalization. So what are the implications of chemotherapy-induced neutropenia for patients for their quality of life and their outcomes? So Dr. Lyman? The burden of chemotherapy-induced neutropenia is known to most of us, uh, any of us caring for patients with cancer, receiving cancer chemotherapy. And, And the major concern here is the documented presence of infectious complications that in the setting of neutropenia can become quite serious, often require hospitalization uh, for aggressive antibiotic coverage. And unfortunately, even today, despite better antibiotics and other measures, uh, can be fatal. And most of these initial events occur during the first cycle of chemotherapy. Uh, There's nothing magical about this because that's the cycle when most patients are receiving the full dose of chemotherapy uh, that's planned. Um, But also, uh, it may be a time when patients haven't been given any kind of prophylactic strategies like hematopoietic growth factors or prophylactic antibiotics or other measures. Um, So the other important point, and again, we'll look at this further with uh, some of the, the data that's available, that the risk of febrile neutropenia increases proportionally with both the severity of neutropenia, the lower the neutrophil count, and the duration of neutropenia. So chemotherapy-induced neutropenia with or without fever representing febrile neutropenia do represent the most common reasons for reducing chemotherapy dose intensity in in patients with cancer being treated with chemotherapy. And this is due to dose reductions and delays that may be prompted to avoid a repetition of a serious infectious complication. Unfortunately, as, as Maura just pointed out, Uh, reducing the dose intensity of chemotherapy may increase the risk of disease progression or recurrence and represent an increase in the the cancer itself contributing to the the complications of patients uh, going forward and their their survival. So treatment of febrile neutropenia often requires an impact on, uh, on patients as they go through uh, in terms of hospitalization Uh, and can have a considerable impact on patient quality of life, as well as costs. And we've done extensive work uh, for the cost, particularly that associated with hospitalization for febrile neutropenia. Maura, I'll turn back to you to uh, talk about uh, the the risk factors and when to evaluate uh, the risk. So we evaluate our patients for at risk for febrile neutropenia at various points throughout the course of their illness. We want to do it at the time of their diagnosis. So we understand what their underlying cancer diagnosis is, a hematologic malignancy versus a solid tumor um, malignancy will also alter the risk factor for developing febrile neutropenia. And then there are individual risk factors, some of which we reviewed earlier, but we want to look at their performance status, their overall organ function and age, again, with older age, being associated with worse outcome for those who develop febrile neutropenia. We want to look at risk of febrile neutropenia prior to the first treatment cycle, as well as each subsequent treatment cycle, especially as we watch blood counts for trend down as patients receive multiple doses of myelosuppressive therapy. We trend their ANC or their absolute neutrophil count as well. 
anytime we change a therapy plan, we want to also, again, consider how much somebody has been pretreated, what the risk factor is for developing neutropenia related to the myelosuppressiveness of the new therapy plan. If the patient has ever had growth factors used before in previous treatment, if they've ever had incidents of febrile neutropenia or chemotherapy-induced neutropenia, if they've ever required hospitalization or have had an episode of sepsis and required hospitalization for treatment. Dr. Lyman? So I'll just extend on that. Uh, as, as we mentioned, the risk for chemotherapy uh, for febrile neutropenia uh, relates directly to the severity and duration of neutropenia. In this case, uh, some early studies are clearly demonstrating that the uh, proportion of patients with uh, febrile neutropenia increases with the number of days of severe neutropenia that the patient is experiencing. Uh, so, so severe neutropenia, the uh, duration of severe neutropenia, and of course, patients with prolonged hospitalizations or uh, more serious infections like fungal infections further increase the risk of uh, poor outcomes. Uh, of course, the use of broad-spectrum antibiotics has become standard and uh, in the early days dramatically improved the outcome of these patients. But as I said, patients still do die from these complications, particularly the very elderly, the frail, those with a lot of comorbidities. And in just about everybody, there's a direct impact on quality of life uh, that uh, uh, it can be quite uh, debilitating. So uh, just to show some of our data uh, from a, a variety of real-world uh, data settings, looking at the risk of febrile neutropenia uh, and what proportion of these events, at least the initial event, occurs during the first cycle. As I said, when everybody's getting generally the full treatment course with or without any kind of preventive strategies. And you can see across cancer settings, uh, the pro probability of febrile neutropenia is consistently greater in this first cycle, ranging from 50 to 80 uh, percent across uh, cancer types. So the NCCN guidelines, of course, there's guidelines from ASCO, from European, uh, the uh, European Oncology uh, uh, URTC, and from uh, other organizations in both Europe and the U.S., uh, generally stratify patients using some of the criteria that Dr. Abbott has talked about. Uh, into high, intermediate, or low risk of febrile neutropenia. And while the cut points for these are somewhat arbitrary, they've proven to be quite uh, useful and uh, uh, effective with the goal, of course, is making sure everybody who's high risk for febrile neutropenia gets some type of prophylactic strategy. And NCCN and these other organizations recommend prophylactic hematopoietic uh, growth factors. Uh, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, generally starting those uh, one, two, three days following the, the last dose of chemotherapy and continuing until the neutrophil counts uh, re resume, uh, restore. Uh, patients at low risk, so less than 10% by these definitions, probably don't need routine use of uh, a myeloid growth factor. There are six exceptions where patients had a previous episode of febrile neutropenia, uh, or again, have a serious and uh, potentially debilitating or life-threatening uh, concomitant conditions that you want to avoid febrile neutropenia at all costs. Uh, but of course, the trade-off is these are expensive agents, the hematopoietic growth factors. And uh, if you prophylax everyone, uh, most of whom don't need it, uh, there's an enormous uh, cost both to society and to the patient themselves. 
uh, of somewhat controversy is this intermediate risk group, uh, 10 to 20% risk. Um, most chemotherapy regimens in adults for solid tumors actually uh, fall into this category. And again, the guidelines are a little bit, I won't say ambiguous, but they aren't um, as black and white as, of course, some of us would like them to be. And basically saying, if you don't have any other risk factors, except uh, you're getting one of these agents associated with an immediate risk of uh, febrile neutropenia, you probably don't need to give routine uh, growth factor prophylaxis. But if the patient does have other risk factors, again, that were listed uh, by Dr. Abbott and some are listed uh, here as well, uh, that put the patient at additional risk. Our own data would suggest many of those patients, although they're getting an intermediate risk chemotherapy regimen, their individual risk of febrile neutropenia can be much higher, can be in the, the, the category of high risk that is over 20%. So using these risk cr criteria, uh, one can kind of personalize the decision whether to use growth factor prophylaxis or other strategies and have an informed discussion with the patient uh, and discuss the, the benefits and, and risk associated with these. Now, this is all to do with what we call primary prophylaxis, that first cycle of chemotherapy. Uh, when we know that, uh, again, most patients are going to have a problem if they are, are destined to have one. However, if a patient fell into these lower risk categories, didn't get prophylaxis, but nevertheless went on to an episode of febrile neutropenia, then the guidelines recommend secondary prophylaxis, meaning starting in the next cycle and onward uh, to consider the use of uh, uh, GCSF or other type of myeloid growth factor prophylaxis. The alternatives are to reduce the dose or delay the treatment. And as we've talked about, this can be uh, problematic, particularly when you're treating patients for the cancer uh, with curative intent. Uh, so, um, so the decision is the recommendation is generally to consider uh, secondary prophylaxis with a myeloid growth factor. Um, uh, if the patient's in a palliative care setting and, and uh, there are extenuating circumstances, uh, it, it may not always be necessary, but it's certainly something to consider. And then the question, final question is: let's say a patient didn't get prophylaxis uh, and comes into the hospital with febrile neutropenia. Do you use growth factors to treat the febrile neutropenia? Of course, the primary treatment is, again, empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics to begin with, awaiting the cultures. And when the cultures uh, come back, if they're positive, then target the antibiotic therapy towards the offending organism. Um, however, uh, there are patients who are seriously, seriously ill. They may have neutrophils less than 100. Uh, they may have... Uh, uh, be in respiratory distress uh, in the ICU and so forth. And the data that from our own work uh, through the Cochrane collaboration is that myeloid growth factors may still shorten the hospital somewhat. It's not routinely recommended, but it's certainly there as an option in, in the extreme situations where you have uh, very little else to lose. Now, of course, if a patient did get prophylactic myeloid growth factors and nevertheless ends up in the hospital, we know these prevention strategies are not perfect. Um, that, uh, particularly uh, if they're getting a short-acting product, that probably should continue while they're in the hospital until their neutrophils recover. If they got a long-acting product, they probably don't need additional uh, uh, growth factor support. So 
looking at how uh, chemotherapy-induced neutropenia in earlier lines of therapy affects uh, uh, decision-making, this just uh, this kind of busy slide, but it shows data from a real-world setting of more than 3,500 patients uh, in community practices being treated with chemotherapy, first-line chemotherapy. And you can see uh, the timeline to the development of severe febrile neutropenia, which is this blue line uh, with a peak in the first cycle, so the first 21 days, then comes down. There are small peaks in the second and third cycle, but again, that's not magical. And what happens with those subsequent cycles is illustrated, uh, first of all, with the red dashed line, um, that those patients who didn't get prophylaxis in the first cycle generally go on to secondary prophylaxis. And that probably is the major reason that there's not a second and third and subsequent waves uh, to the risk of uh, neutropenia. There's also a lower line, I think it's shown in green here, um, uh, where occasionally patients are put on uh, antibiotics uh, prophylactically during the second cycle. This is not routinely recommended because it may encourage development of antimicrobial resistance in institutions and large practices. Uh, but we know it's all still done in some circumstances uh, and that goes up in the second and subsequent cycles. So all these strategies, along with dose reductions and treatment delays, which is the very bottom dash line, those strategies are contribute to why that first wave is so high uh, for febrile neutropenia. And then in subsequent cycles, it, it's quite muted. But again, it, it's not magic. So, um, so what are the current strategies for prophylaxis and treatment of CN, CIN? And what are the benefits and limitations to these approaches? So chemotherapy-induced my, myelosuppression, uh, again, can, may get managed in different ways, as I just mentioned in our real-world data. Uh, usually it involves a GCSF or myeloid growth factor. Uh, some of these patients are also anemic, so an erythroid stimulating agent may get added, or in, in more extreme cases, red cell blood cell transfusions are uh, recommended. And then more, far more commonly, although more common in the hemologic malignancies, low platelets may lead to a need for platelet transfusion, and there now are some agents that have emerged uh, although not for the specific indication of chemotherapy-induced thrombocytopenia. The bottom is always this strategy of dose reductions and treatment delays, which again may not be unreasonable in patients with in a palliative setting uh, where you're not treating so much for cure, but to minimize the complications of cancer or cancer treatment. Um, but in the more curative setting or where uh, a more aggressive approach is warranted, usually uh, the type-line approach is a myeloid growth factor. So these, the growth factors have emerged, uh, and I, I actually go back to the beginning of this curve uh, historically because I would participated in the early development of these agents, um, uh, GCSF and GMCSF, uh, back in the uh, 80s, actually, and then became available in the early 90s uh, based on randomized controlled trials demonstrating a significant reduction of febrile neutropenia. Uh, of course, uh, these initial agents were uh, short-lived agents uh, in a matter of hours. So they had to be administered daily uh, to maintain any type of therapeutic uh, levels in the blood. Uh, fortunately, in the early uh, 2000s, uh, a long-acting form of uh, GCSF became available, pegylated GCSF, uh, uh, that uh, uh, enabled a once-per-cycle dosing of the myeloid growth factors. 
Uh, so patients didn't have to get daily shots, but they would get a shot uh, again a couple of days after their chemotherapy. Uh, uh, nowadays, uh, potentially with a, a, a device that administers it automatically at home. Um, and, uh, and, and then they don't need to uh, uh, repeat the dosing until the next cycle. Uh, then, of course, the downside for all these has been the cost of these agents, as well as the administration. And I, I think we're all aware the cost of these agents has continued to rise even after the initial launch um, and has, uh, while it varies across the country and in different uh, practices, uh, is a substantial contribution to the cost of cancer treatment. So uh, once the patents began to expire on, on the original agent, GMCSF, and pegylated GCSF, uh, uh, other companies uh, decided to develop highly similar agents, what we call biosimilars, uh, to these agents. Now, it took the FDA a while to develop regulations around approving biosimilars. So the first, what in Europe is considered a biosimilar, Tebofilgrastum, was approved in 2012 before these regulations are in place. So while technically it's a biosimilar, it was approved as a new agent and followed uh, all the same rules. So its application, its indications are limited to the trials that we use to support its application. The subsequent biosimilars, and they're, they're listed here, both GCSF and GMCSF, uh, were approved under the new biosimilar regulatory process. Uh, so there's less clinical data required uh, but actually more preclinical data, uh, uh, analytic data, what we call uh, uh, an array of critical quality attributes to make sure that these agents, uh, which are made in living cells, living systems, they're not synthesized like a chemical in a laboratory. And so forth, there is, and therefore there can be variation in their production uh, manufacturing. And there's potential for drift as the manufacturing processes or components uh, change over time. And all this is monitored. Uh, and we now have multiple biosimilar forms of these agents, which it looks like in early data has begun to reduce the pricing on these agents somewhat, uh, but we still have a long way to go. So we currently have a number of FDA approved white cell growth factors for managing patients at risk for febrile neutropenia uh, with cancer. Uh, on the left, you can see a list of these. Uh, they include uh, both uh, the uh, originators, filgrastim and pegfilgrastim, and the biosimilars, uh, tebofilgrastim, technically uh, a biosimilar, although it's approved as an originator, but then uh, three biosimilar filgrastims and four biosimilar pegfilgrastims. Uh, and then uh, we have the on-body injector for pegfilgrastim available and sargramistin, which has been available for many years at GMCSF. So the adverse effects across these agents are fairly uniform. Uh, the most common side effect uh, being that of uh, bone pain. Uh, occasionally fever, particularly with sargramistin, has been uh, seen in clinical practice. Uh, they do require daily injections for the short-acting agents and the once-per-cycle dosing of the long-acting agent. And, uh, and again, now with the on-body uh, injector available, uh, it can occasionally uh, malfunction, uh, and that needs to be monitored. Um, the, uh, the, the challenge for clinicians and patients is, uh, is the payer and the health system, but particularly the payer who may have preferred agents 
that uh, either are not available or that the uh, your uh, clinician, your oncologist uh, is, is not their favored uh, one of this list. Uh, so uh, sometimes there has to be an appeal or sometimes a special request or uh, sometimes patients pay out of pockets, but the, again, the price on these days is very expensive. Uh, primary prophylaxis covered is generally restricted patients at high risk, but as we said, patients getting intermediate risk chemotherapy may be high risk by virtue of their other comorbid conditions. Uh, secondary prophylaxis uh, coverage after the first cycle, if they developed an event, uh, it, it may also be restricted uh, 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 and require documentation of the prior event. For sergramistin, as I mentioned, fever, uh, and sometimes uh, uh, a capillary leak-type syndrome, and then uh, skin reactions have been, been reported. So uh, these all have uh, the, their own adverse effects. I think cost is the one that's kind of almost universal um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the, the ones of concerns that to patient, but this education needs to be provided to patients so they're not concerned that the bone pain represents a recurrence of their cancer, but it's a re, an adverse effect from the growth factor in about 20% of patients. Just turning here to the, the benefits and limitations, of course, the benefits of these agents are to prevent fibronychopenia, hospitalization, and serious infection in many patients and to improve chemotherapy dose delivery, particularly with uh, regimens like dose-dense therapies where uh, they're, they're absolutely obligatory to uh, delivering uh, dose-dense schedules every two weeks. Uh, limitations are listed here. Bone pain is the most common adverse event uh, in about 20, 25% of patients. It's self-limited, uh, and the biggest concern there is patients may fear that their cancer is returning, and they need reassurance and education around that. Uh, the most serious risk, uh, although all, all the rest are kind of serious, um, that's gotten some attention is a potential risk of an increase in acute leukemia or myelodysplastic syndrome, generally three to five years later. What's unclear is whether this risk, which has been documented in both trials and uh, real-world data is due to the growth factor or is due to the fact that patients getting the growth factor receive more chemotherapy, higher doses uh, on schedule. So the dose intensity of the chemotherapy is greater. And we know many of these chemotherapeutic agents are leukemogenic or can potentially cause leukemia. So that remains an uncertain question, but it's important to counsel patients around all that. And then the bottom risk that, again, we and others have spent a lot of time talking about is this issue of financial toxicity. Uh, while the cost has begun to bend down a bit, we believe uh, both the originators and the biosimilars remain very costly, and that always needs to be weighed and discussed with the patient. So just a, a brief uh, comment on uh, recently approved uh, therapies uh, that have emerged uh, uh, for you know, reducing the risk of febrile neutropenia. And I'll just uh, very briefly uh, summarize, look at one agent that was uh, recently approved by the FDA. And this is uh, trilocyclib, which is a CD4-6, uh, IV CD4-6 inhibitor. Um, it's administered prior to chemotherapy. It arrests hematopoietic stem cells, as well as lymphocytes, uh, and, and because they are dependent on CDK4-6 for proliferation. Uh, as well as the immune response. Uh, so you want to block those. You want to arrest those cells 
before you give the chemotherapy. Otherwise, they'll be hit directly by the chemotherapy. However, following chemotherapy, the arrest uh, uh, resolves and normal hematopoiesis uh, resumes. Uh, uh, many tumors, however, do not get this arrest. And so for most tumors, um, uh, that arrest uh, may not, uh, uh, or for many tumors, that, that arrest may not occur. Uh, it's important that uh, trilocyca be targeted to specific tumors, and one that they've uh, uh, and actually gained approval for is small cell lung cancer. And you can see the approval by the FDA last year uh, for trilocyclib in small cell lung cancer was based on three uh, phase two, uh, two trials, actually, in patients either getting first line or second line uh, chemotherapy for extensive stage uh, small cell lung cancer. And this just shows from uh, uh, the from the phase two uh, data in first line, uh, the impact of trilocyclib being uh, given compared to placebo along with the chemotherapy. And you can see there are significant uh, reductions in neutropenic complications, uh, also in uh, other hematologic uh, uh, complications. And on the right-hand side here, um, some favorable impacts on quality of life domains with a reduction in uh, uh, various uh, physical uh, uh, and uh, emotional complications, uh, fatigue, and so forth. So there does seem to be a favorable effect both physically and in terms of the neutropenic complications uh, and other hematopoietic complications and the patient's quality of life. So uh, this, this just summarizes some, uh, from the uh, pooled analysis. If you look at trilocyclib alone in the middle uh, compared to the placebo, I guess all, all these patients getting chemotherapy, that most of the adverse events were probably chemotherapy related. But if you look at things like neutropenia, anemia, uh, thrombocytopenia, you can see a significant reduction, at least a halving of these complications if the patient was pre-treated with the uh, trilocyclic. There are also some other interesting uh, reductions like alopecia uh, and uh, uh, so forth, which are, are still being uh, explored. So how do these fit into the cancer chemotherapy landscape? And I think here, more I'll turn back to you. Yeah. So in general, we are largely reactive in, in our world in terms of managing chemotherapy-induced myelosuppression, whether it be leukopenia, anemia, or even thrombocytopenia. Um, because of some of the remarks that Dr. Lyman made earlier about potential side effects, about costs, and so on and so forth. And so proactive use of currently available products is, is generally limited overall. Um, and in just usually a very small subset of patients, would we prophylactically or proactively use um, GCSFs? Um, we also have current drug therapy strategies where we're using stimulating factors to produce a single cell lineage. Again, as we had talked about earlier, whether it to be to produce granulocytes, erythrocytes, or even thrombocytes to, to, produce, to prevent neutropenia, anemia and thrombocytopenia. Insurance coverage, again, is a large issue for, for patients across the country um, with insurance coverage and often prior authorizations being needed before we can administer these, pro these products to our patients. And we have to have a conversation with them about the cost for the product, co-payments, and so on and so forth. And we still need to come up with some alternative strategies for this. So overall, what are some considerations for chemotherapy? 
um, when we're giving myelosuppressive uh, chemotherapy that leads to, to neutropenia. And we're going to look a little bit further into, um, you know, preventing the dose delays and, and what do we do when somebody does develop febrile neutropenia? So I'll just chime in on this slide because uh, this is some of the work coming out of our own group. This is based on a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials giving a chemotherapy uh, across disease settings uh, and looking uh, in more granularity at the dosing of the chemotherapy with and without GCSF support. Uh, and, uh, and what we found, of course, is there are different ways you can reduce the dose intensity. Uh, number one, you can attempt to give the same dose and schedule, uh, but maybe because of uh, subsequent neutropenic events, uh, are unable to give it quite as uh, the same dose intensity. Uh, but we didn't see a significant effect here, although it trended towards uh, a, a, a reduction in mortality when there, there was a uh, growth factor support. However, where the comparator here is dose-dense scheduling versus standard dose scheduling, and again, dose-dense scheduling require uh, myeloid growth factor support, we saw a significant uh, reduction in all-cause mortality, we believe most of it due to the cancer itself, uh, across studies. Uh, there were also studies where the, the, the dose difference here was not so much in the schedule. A patient received the same interval of chemotherapy, uh, but the growth factor arm included a higher dose of chemotherapy. And again, the trend is in the right direction. Uh, but didn't quite reach significance. And there are much fewer trials in this, in, in, in this setting. Um, and then uh, uh, the uh, fourth one, which is kind of a hodgepodge, uh, where the growth factor support was used uh, to add additional chemotherapy agent to the regimen. So instead of two agents, a patient got three agents uh, with a growth factor or a different agent was added for an original one, uh, presumably an agent with more myelosuppression, so growth factors were added on. And again, you can see uh, a reduction in the long-term uh, mortality associated with that kind of uh, uh, exploration. So this is just, again, additional data that dose intensity is maintained uh, with, chemo with a growth factor support, uh, but it can have a clinically meaningful impact on long-term results. This is with the median duration of uh, five years of follow-up on these patients. So let me just talk about uh, what's coming along, some innovation. Um, these are not approved agents uh, uh, at this point. So there's a drug, uh, planabulin, uh, is a first-in-class selective immunomodulating agent that binds to microtubules. Um, and uh, and uh, it's derived from, um, it's a small molecule uh, derived from uh, marine animals, and it promotes uh, microtubule stabilization, at least it, uh, uh, it triggers downstream molecular pathways driving dendritic cell maturation and antigen-induced T-cell activation. Uh, so there's, it basically has an impact, impact directly on anti-tumor immunity. So that's one aspect of this agent. What's intriguing is in addition to its immune potentiating effects, planabulin can prevent chemotherapy-induced neutropenia uh, caused by different myelosuppressive agents. And the one they've looked at more closely is docetaxel, but now they've extended this to other agents. 
by boosting the number of hematopoietic stem cells in the bone marrow, as you see illustrated here, and, uh, and, and alleviating, alleviating as well chemotherapy-induced thrombocytopenia. Um, so it was a phase two trial, uh, two, three trial of flanablin plus docetaxel versus pegfodrasum uh, plus uh, docetaxel, a randomized prospective phase two trial. While the pegfodrasum um, shown in the yellow curve here in terms of absolute neutrophil count maintained levels a bit higher, um, neither, both of these arms, both the planabulin and chemotherapy and pegfograsm chemotherapy, uh, the mean uh, neutrophil levels stayed well above 1,000 neutrophils, a grade, uh, a grade four neutropenia. So, uh, so they both have offered some protection, uh, but at the same time, the bone pain associated quite commonly, as we mentioned earlier, with pegfograsm was significantly less. And you can see the, the bone pain scores uh, shown here uh, in uh, cycle one. So, uh, so it's being promoted, developed further as both a immunostimulatory agent for cancer treatment, uh, somewhat protective of uh, neutrophil levels, and one that might reduce the toxicity of a growth factor supportive chemotherapy. Now this data was presented at uh, the San Antonio breast meeting last last year uh, called Protective 2 subsequent trial, where they gave pegfograstim with or without planabolin. So this was looking at the issue, patient, this was patients getting with breast cancer, getting TAC chemotherapy, highly myelosuppressive regimen, um, with either pegfograstim support alone or the combination of planabulin and pegfograstim. And you can see the key endpoints that were looked at. And the results are quite dramatic. And, and this, uh, I think, is... Uh, has been submitted for publication. I don't think it's out in press yet, showing a significant reduction of grade four neutropenia in those getting the combination. Uh, 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 so this this uh, shows the, the prevention. So it's a little complicated, showing the prevention of febrile neutropenia, not the occurrence of febrile neutropenia. Uh, and, and, and the right side, grade three or four. So again, uh, more prevention, more protection offered by the combination uh, than by pegfograsm alone with this highly myelosuppressive regimen. And you see at the bottom, just as a footnote, profound neutropenia, which we consider less than 100, um, was significantly reduced, more than half in patients getting the combination of pegfograsm and planabulin compared to pegfograsm alone. And the mean duration of profound neutropenia was cut in half. So it's interesting. Um, uh, again, is not uh, approved yet in the multiple studies uh, ongoing, uh, in, including uh, in other disease settings. So uh, with that, I'll turn it back to you more to kind of our, our final section to talk about patient education and, uh, and uh, management from there. So one of the really big important keys to managing chemotherapy-induced neutropenia and complications such as febrile neutropenia that goes along with it are to educate our patients about the risk factors and their specific risks before it actually occurs. So you wanna to talk to the patients again, go back to that individualized thought we talked about in the beginning, what is their underlying cancer diagnosis, their stage, their grade, um, what treatment are they getting and what underlying com comorbidities or risk factors they might have, age and otherwise. You wanna make sure, and this is, Actually, a really good point, make sure patients have a working thermometer. Patients will often tell you they felt like they had a temperature, they felt warm, somebody felt them, they felt warm. But we really, really want them to have a working thermometer so they can actually take their real temperature 
and report to us what that number is. Educate patients about what the number is that, that is equivalent to a fever, as we talked about earlier in the presentation, and review with patients their risk factors for developing chemotherapy-induced neutropenia and subsequent febrile neutropenia, whether they're low, intermediate, or high risk, as we had previously reviewed. We want to talk about prevention methods for patients in terms of preventing them from getting infections, good hand washing, which is something we've all been really in tune to the last couple of years, <laughs> avoid large crowds or gatherings, especially when they are neutropenic, avoid contact with sick persons. They want to avoid contact with persons who have recently received live vaccines as they're at risk for developing an infection from a live vaccine. On the other hand, you also want to encourage family members of patients at risk to be vaccinated to prevent them from spreading communicable illnesses, flu, COVID, et cetera, and wearing masks when appropriate, um, when they're at risk and neutropenic and may have to go to some of these settings. Um, you wanna talk about plans to review um, and monitor the patient's blood counts on a regular basis, whether it be before, during, or after a cycle and, and whether they need supportive care through that. And talk about the how we'll administer growth factor support as needed, how we will administer it, an injection, when it will be administered, how long after they finish their chemotherapy, and side effects. As we had mentioned earlier, bone pain can be upsetting to patients because it could be, uh, you know, they could think that their cancer is, is returning when it's actually just a side effect of the medication. We also want to talk about um, prophylaxing um, some of our patients, um, antifungal prophylaxis with azole medications for people who are profoundly neutropenic. We think more in the hematologic malignant population encourage patients to receive their annual influenza, vac influenza vaccination, as well as their family members. Um, we want to talk about nucleoside reverse transcription inhibitors for patients at high risk of, of hepatitis B virus reactivation, and also for viral prophylaxis in patients, um, especially those who are going under um, stem cell transplants or leukemia patients receiving induction therapy who are profoundly neutropenic. So what happens if the patient develops a fever, and this is really important to educate the patient what to do if they develop a fever at home. You want to educate patients on when to take their temperature, if they're generally feeling unwell, if they have chills, before they're taking any medications that may reduce their temperature. If they have aches or pains and they want to take acetaminophen, you want to make sure that they've taken their temperature before that because it can reduce their, their temperature and they won't be able to, to um, accurately report that they have a fever. You want to educate patients on when to call their oncology team. It should be immediately if they have a fever or if they have chills and they're just not feeling well, we should tell them regardless of the day, the time, the week, whatever day it is, holiday or not, to please call. Um, then we want to stress to them the importance of not delaying treatment for a fever, especially if they're known to be neutropenic or heading to a time in the treatment cycle where they will become neutropenic. Educate patients um, on when they should call 911, um, especially if they're feeling not well, they're really weak, or that they need to go to an emergency room if they're able to transport themselves there in a timely fashion or have somebody bring them there. Um, patients should have an emergency number to call when the office is closed. Um, and reassure patients, and this is very important, patients often like to say they don't want to bother somebody, but it is important to reassure patients that they should call when they're not feeling well, regardless of what it is that they're feeling. It's important to call at any time. So when a patient comes into your office and they come in with um, febrile neutropenia, what do you want to do? You want to get a detailed history. If you're in an urgent care, an emergency room, if they're not seeing you, you want to make sure they're, we know what regimen they're, um, the chemotherapeutic regimen they're on, where they are in that regimen. Um, if they have a history of infections, if they have a history of resistant organism infections, um, if they have any specific signs of infection, 
um, if they've previously been hospitalized for these infections and so on and so forth. We want to do some diagnostic testings. Obviously, we want to get a blood count to make sure um, we know exactly what their neutrophil count is and how severely neutropenic they are. Um, we also want to look at a CMP so we can look at their other organ functions, blood cultures, other cultures as needed, urine and stool, test x-ray, or even test um, CT imaging, especially for those with hematologic malignancies to rule out fungal pneumonia. We also want to evaluate for risks for complications. And we have two scales that are out there, which is the, the MASC or the Multinational Association for Supportive Care in Cancer versus the, the CISNE, which is the Clinical Index of Stable Febrile Neutropenia. Um, and if we're looking at them, um, the CISNE has more accurate predictability in terms of those who will um, have complications from febrile neutropenia. And this is just a brief overview of the two scales. And you can see you basically put in person's individualized um, scores for each of these. And then you go ahead and score and decide whether they're at low, intermediate, or high risk of um, developing complications from febrile neutropenia. So if somebody comes in, the other thing to do is administer broad spectrum antibiotics after you get your blood cultures within 60 minutes of their presentation. And when possible, especially for those who potentially could have complications or are not really a, a candidate for being discharged home for treatment of febrile neutropenia, is to observe that patient for four hours to make sure they maintain, maintain their clinical stability and overall are hemodynamic, hemodynamically stable before sent home. So for patients who have low risk of complications from febrile neutropenia, if they remain clinically stable, they can be managed as an outpatient in some settings. You would want to start oral broad-spectrum empiric therapy with fluoroquinolones, um, plus amoxicillin and clavulinate, um, or clindamycin for patients who have a penicillin allergy. If a patient is still febrile after 48 to 72 hours on that antibiotic therapy, you may want to reevaluate that antibiotic regimen as well as their clinical condition and consider admission for IV antibiotics if they're just not doing any better. So for management of febrile neutropenia, high-risk patient management, you want to start broad-spectrum IV antibiotic therapy within one hour of presentation or one hour of that triage. So the Infectious Disease Society of America, or the IDSA, recommends that we should give monotherapy with anti-pseudomonal bactylatum agents, so cefepime, uh, piperacillin. Um, vancomycin is not recommended for initial therapy of these patients, but you want to consider them if you think they may be having some sort of central catheter infection or they have skin or soft tissue involvement um, with their infection or pneumonias, or they become hemodynamically stable or are hemodynamically unstable on um, presentation. If a patient has um, a history of uh, resistant or has it a suspected exposure to resistant organisms, or they continue to clinically decline, you want to think about adding coverage to treat these resistant um, species. And there's just a kind of a list here for how we would treat MRSA, VRE, and, and other common um, resistant organisms. Dr. Lyman? So uh, just in terms of closing out here, of course, we've all been experiencing uh, this pandemic over the last uh, couple of years which has had an enormous impact on clinical care in general and patient care in particular. We know that cancer patients are particularly uh, at greater risk for not only getting uh, COVID, but experiencing serious, potentially fatal complication from COVID-19. Fortunately, our, the vaccines have, have changed the landscape quite a bit, uh, although we're seeing a lot of breakthrough infections and resurgence and new uh, variants appearing and including the BA2, which is now spreading in parts of the country. Uh, 
Uh, so we may not, we certainly are not done with this yet. And then globally, of course, um, the, the majority of the world's population are not vaccinated and with a global community. I think, you know, we can't say that we're out of the woods yet until uh, we've been able to uh, get vaccines to uh, every corner of the, uh, the globe where the infection is present. Nonetheless, because of this uh, and because patients with cancer are particularly vulnerable uh, guidelines um, uh, from uh, ASCO, NCCN, uh, from ESMO, the European Society of Medical Oncology, uh, have uh, uh, made specific recommendations on uh, uh, su supportive care of cancer patients during the COVID-19 uh, era. And in the, in the summary in the box just said, care must be taken to patients requiring cancer therapy to reduce this, the risk of serious infections, including FN and minimize a patient exposure, as well as uh, resource utilization that can further place themselves and healthcare system at risk. So we've done a lot with um, managing patients remotely, um, but we want to make sure as Dr. Abbott has nicely summarized, that patients with likely or presumed neutropenia and a fever are urgently evaluated. And that doesn't mean by remote medicine, but by uh, going to the emergency room or to the doctor's office and being seen promptly, evaluated, cultured if necessary, and then uh, started on appropriate treatment, usually broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, of course, we also wanna prevent these complications uh, to the extent we can. Now, early in the pandemic, uh, there were some places where chemotherapy was being delayed uh, or modified to reduce that risk. Of course, for a long time now, we haven't felt that that was appropriate. Uh, and we have actually uh, moved to uh, continuing to treat patients appropriately, as well as screen patients for recurrence or for other uh, uh, illnesses that need to be screened for. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we want to maintain appropriate uh, supportive care to patients going through myelosuppressive chemotherapy. Uh, and maintain uh, things such as mass social distancing and make sure, and we've argued this for over a year and a half now, that cancer patients be prioritized for COVID vaccination. Um, they were not part of the initial pivotal trials of the vaccines, which was very disappointing. So we didn't know how well they work and may know for some cancer patients, particularly leukemias, lymphomas, and patients uh, going through uh, transplantation and other high-risk settings, they don't respond as well to these vaccines and therefore have to be extra cautious. So um, uh, so with that, just as a final message, I uh, just want to emphasize that what we consider, Dr. Abbott and I consider the key takeaways from this discussion, um, uh, that despite the availability of rescue therapies, uh, chemotherapy-induced myelosuppression remains an important and unmet clinical need. It's as long as we are giving patients myelosuppressive chemotherapy, this need will remain. And, as, and even the best of our agents are not guarantees for uh, preventing these complications. Obviously, again, chemotherapy dose reductions and delays may, uh, may occur. And in some cases they're appropriate, but in many cases they're reactive and uh, may compromise, you know, reduce the risk of febrile neutropenia in the short term, but increase the risk of the cancer returning uh, months and years later. And then some supportive care strategies uh, also have side effects like bone pain we've talked about, uh, and potentially uh, some other risks that are still being evaluated like uh, AML, MDS. 
Um, existing therapies tend to be lineage specific. Uh, that is uh, certainly GCSF is very neutrophil lineage uh, specific. Uh, and, uh, and again, these agents are very costly across, even in the new biosimilars, uh, cost remains a, a considerable issue. Newer therapies that might act across the myeloporotic spectrum uh, are uh, emerging. We mentioned the trilocyclib, uh, and, and of course, uh, some of the newer agents we discussed um, may affect uh, the, uh, of course, platelets, uh, as well as red cells. And, uh, and so myelosuppression, which by definition is across lineages, uh, may be better protected. And then currently, there's no available therapy that prevents or mitigates uh, these myelosuppressive effects in chemotherapy before they occur. But the goal is to prevent subsequent downstream uh, effects of, uh, of neutropenia. So uh, discovering ways to protect the hematopoietic uh, precursor cells from the uh, cytotoxic effects of chemotherapy remain a paramount area of investigation. And one where these newer agents hopefully will begin to make a dent as we explore uh, newer and, and better agents. Uh, so with that, uh, we've included here uh, references uh, uh, cited throughout this presentation. Uh, and uh, at that, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Abbott for your excellent summary of, of these issues and the care that you deliver on a daily basis to patients. And thank you all for attending. Hopefully it has been useful and we look forward to your uh, feedback on this program. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatment, all found at oncdata.com. To claim CME or NCPD credit for this activity, visit i3health.com slash ODA hyphen CIN. While you're there, you can check out our other free oncology CME and NCPD offerings at i3health.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media for free CME and NCPD, as well as news, exclusive interviews, and more. Mm -hmm.